First up, though, we are talking about a story that you likely remember. We covered this here as well as on Global News. A man walked 250 kilometers, ending that walk in Kamloops in honor of the memory of the 250 children found buried at the former site of the Kamloops Residential School. It was inspiring. A lot of people really paid attention and followed along. Well, the man who walked that distance is now in hospital fighting for his life. And his wife is joining us on the program right now. Heather Mercer is with us. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Hi, Jill. Thank you. How is how is your husband? How is Rob doing? Well, I just uh, got back from the hospital. I was allowed to sit outside his room for as long as I wanted, looking through the glass, which isn't quite the same as holding his hand but uh um they yeah i would just got to spend some time with him and he's still quite sedated he's got about nine different tubes coming out of him um but i understand that there was a very tiny improvement in his lung function overnight which is of course hugely encouraging for me i just uh i miss him so much i want him home with me and the kids so uh yeah i feel i feel encouraged by that small small change though it might be that's that's good to hear though that there is some uh, encouraging news Uh, rob your husband is in the hospital with covid Uh, how did this play out or can you tell us how how he when he contracted it and and what happened yeah he started to feel unwell about two and a half weeks ago and um, i was actually away and i came home and he said i'm pretty sick and i you know i think you should go get a covid test so um he got his positive results and we tried to isolate him at home from the kids, but he was quite ill sort of right from the beginning. And um, I'm an emergency nurse, so I did my best nursing at home. But um, after about nine days, he was just too sick. And I brought him into the hospital and he ended up in ICU a few hours later um, in Kelowna. Um, It was pretty scary, uh, you know, not being able to be there with him and not knowing, well, I guess as a nurse, kind of knowing a little bit about what is going wrong, it's pretty terrifying so he's been in ICU he was in ICU in Kelowna on the first and so he's uh, and then was transferred to VGH where he's receiving tremendous care here Uh, they had to transfer him to Vancouver to do ECMO um, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation because his lungs had pretty much totally shut down and were no longer doing gas exchange Um, so yeah he's He's here in the hospital and pretty heavily sedated. And and we're talking about uh, someone as well. And people who saw the story will likely remember seeing the coverage of Rob when he went on that 215-kilometer walk. Uh, he's a practitioner of, is it judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, a healthy uh, young father. Yeah, he's pretty healthy. I mean, he might be carrying a couple extra pounds, or at least he was before this week, but he's lost, I think. But uh you know, heart and lungs, healthy, uh, robust. So, you know, the, the whole family actually tested positive for COVID, myself and the, my three little children. They're four, two, and 11 months. Um, and the kids had, you know, my one son just sneezed five times. Um, the other son was cranky, but they had just minimal symptoms and recovered and finished our quarantine. And I had, I guess, what amounted to a pretty bad flu for 10 days or so. Um, you know, it was pretty awful. I was trying to take care of everything, but Robin just got hit so hard and there was not really any rhyme or reason for that. And it's pretty, yeah, it just, it, it's difficult because we don't know with COVID. Like some people do great and 
and some people don't. And how how can we predict that? I certainly couldn't have in his case. So. And your children are obviously too young at this point, but had you and your husband been vaccinated? Uh, no, we have not. And, and is that just because you haven't been uh, able to, or, or was that a decision that you made not to? We, you know, we didn't decide not to. We just had, we actually decided to get vaccinated, but we had delayed and I guess not felt such urgency. And I guess that with the outbreak in Kelowna just happened so quickly. Um, it just took us a bit by surprise. Um, you know, I, our perspective on things is that, uh, we, you know, we, Rob and I both have a strong faith in God and we believe that he knows the end and the beginning, the number of days we each have. But at the same time, we're, you know, we both are really grateful for medical science. And I do think that the fact that scientists have been able to develop a vaccine that works reasonably well with, you know, reasonably low side effects and problems, I think is quite the marvel. And we're grateful for that. Um, and would we, could I take that decision back if I could? I obviously I would. I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing to have theoretical arguments against a vaccine because, you know, many people have concerns about it and about the bigger impact. But at the end of the day, when I'm looking at my husband through a glass window being told that, you know, this this might be the last time I get to talk to him, like, yes, yeah, I would. I would love to encourage people to make decisions that they feel are right for their family to keep your family safe. And um, at some point when I can get the vaccine, I would like to. I understand I have a little bit of immunity from having COVID right now, but, you know, there's variants that are happening. And um, at the end of the day, it's a pretty terrible disease for so many people. I, I guess we were we were truly lucky to have done so well for so long. Um, and I guess... Maybe there's a bit of a false sense of security. Oh. Right. And, and you mentioned that you're an ER nurse. Were you seeing people, though, come into the hospital with COVID? You must have been exposed to it or, or, or known that it was and is a serious virus. So I've been on maternity leave. I've got a young baby, uh, but I did work through the whole first year of COVID when I was pregnant. And, you know, there, emergency nurses and all nurses are dealing with a lot of uh, significant infections and illnesses on a daily basis. So I know that nurses are in particular really stretched right now, but um, nurses are always working hard for the health of the community. And before COVID, nurses were working really hard. And I think it's probably especially heartbreaking right now for them to uh, to see so many young people sick and um, and not doing well. So yeah, my my thoughts are with my colleagues right now and I, I so appreciate their kindness and that, you know, at no point with Robin being sick, did we experience judgmentalism or criticism, but we just have been showered with compassion and kindness. So I'm, I'm very grateful for them. Um, there's a, a push, as you know, to for the people who, for whatever reason, maybe like yourself too, that are a bit hesitant or or hadn't seen it close up, but to get that vaccination. Would you encourage people now, having gone through what you've gone through and what you and your family are still going through, would you encourage people now to get vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, I think that everyone has to weigh these decisions because there's risk and benefits. But I do, I am grateful for or the technology behind these vaccines, I think that, you know, there, I would, of course, you know, that, yeah. 
<laughs> All right. Well, Heather, we're hoping for a, a quick and a full recovery for your husband. And thank you so much for joining us to tell us more about this today. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Just before the break, we were taking a listen to some of the reaction to the sentencing of Canadian Michael Spavor, sentenced to 11 years in prison. That is the sentence handed down by a Chinese court. So what does this mean as far as appeals? What does it mean as far as the Meng Wanzhou case? Could the sentence be lifted if things work out in court or if things are tossed out of court in that case? Richard Curland has been following along. With that, he is an immigration lawyer and a policy analyst and joins us now for the very latest. Thanks so much for being with us. A pleasure. Let's talk first about the sentence handed down to Michael Spavor. What are your thoughts on what we know about that 11-year sentence? It's not a death penalty, so I'm pleased about that. Uh, It is uh, telling uh, that it's 11 years. Um, It may take that long to dispose of the Supreme Court journey of Ms. Mung and her extradition matter. Uh, it's unpleasant. We we have China eyes all over the Canadian extradition process. The timing. Uh, we have a death penalty, an 11-year sentence, a third Canadian detained in China, all within a matter of days. Uh, during the critical portion of Ms. Meng's extradition case, this is the. A committal certificate portion where the dots are connected between the Crown's case, theory and evidence, and the defense case, abuse of process charter violations. The judge is picking apart this morning the Crown's theory of the case, pointing out inconsistencies. Uh, the court will proceed uh, this afternoon and tomorrow with the evidence uh, adduced by the Crown that says Ms. Mung should be extradited to the United States. The court will then move to defense and do the same there. Uh, a criticism pointed at China is the fusion of the political and judicial system of that country. Well, you know, he who is without sin uh, shouldn't be throwing the first stone. When it comes to extradition, the rule of law, the statute of the Extradition Act gives a fusion of political power uh, and judicial authority over an extradition case. What that means is that only in extradition, not criminal, uh, the political minister may legally intervene for political purposes in an extradition case. So China rightly or wrongly, is putting the political attack on Canada by increasing political pressure on the federal government, the prime minister's office, frankly, uh, to uh, bring uh, the political solution available under Canadian law uh, to terminate this uh, extradition case. Uh, Even without this political-judicial fusion under the Extradition Act, this government... The Liberal government is no stranger to political interference in uh, a a judicial matter. Remember SNC-Lavalin? Well, I do. Uh, And uh, the the then Justice Minister Attorney General uh, was terminated and replaced uh, because of this political interference. So uh, we have in Canada not exactly clean hands when it comes to staying away uh, from a, a, a criminal matter, a judicial matter, uh, we've already laid the framework for political interference, even when it's not permitted by statute. And it is permitted by statute. 
when it comes to extradition. So uh, the ball is firmly in Ottawa's court. And unless they do something, two words, Jimmy Carter, <laughs> will ring true. The same way the American president uh, faced a disastrous political campaign in failing to free American hostages from Tehran, so too this men case could be the Jimmy Carter equivalent for the Federal Liberal Party of Canada. So what is your response then when we hear from the Foreign Affairs Minister his, his uh, dismay caused by this sentence and that they will appeal it or they will continue fighting it? Well, it's, uh, the, the, the sentence deserves to be fought. We have to leave no path untraveled when it comes to freeing a Canadian, uh, particularly a Canadian who, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, uh, is another uh, hostage in geopolitical conflict. Uh, Ms. Meng now has had two American presidents wade into her uh, extradition case, uh, and uh, that's deeply troubling. Uh, the extradition uh, uh, system is not designed to be uh, a trade pawn negotiation farm, and it's not supposed to be uh, a, a piece on the geopolitical chessboard. These are human lives. Uh, and uh, one would think that uh, nations have progressed where they do not have to resort to nabbing humans to resolve their political differences. But that's what we're faced with here. So yes, uh, proceed and, and use every method possible to release our uh, detained Canadians. And I have a question for our American neighbors. You see Canada suffering. You, 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 your game is done. You wanted the bank that's at the center of all this, HSBC, removed from United States soil. Well, they did that in May 2021, maybe due to arm twisting, but HSBC has terminated its American uh, operations, except for a few high net worth clients. Washington got what it wanted. So it's time to terminate the extra, well, the uh, proceedings in the United States that are related to the Canadian extradition case, because you won. <laughs> so to take the yes and relieve the strain and stress of your good buddy to the north, uh, and, and you, the Americans too have the power to make this all go away, they should exercise that power. Uh, and uh, Canada did a favor by uh, commencing this extradition case, didn't legally have to, did it as a favor, and now it's payback time. So please, Washington. <laughs> consider terminating uh, that uh, judicial process uh, you have ongoing because you won. There have been calls for Canada to boycott the upcoming Olympics in China. Is it safe if this is still going on? Do you think it's safe for Canadians, for Olympic athletes mm. to go to China? Well, uh, goodness, I, I, I do think it's safe. I mean, the, the risk is uh, infinitesimally low and uh, to, I, I, I may put uh, my my boots uh, where where my phrase is, and I uh, I was uh, in anticipate not anticipation of your question, Joe, but I was thinking the same. And uh, if uh, at the end of this, I, I, I may go in as the test B to see uh, whether it's safe or not over the objections of some close family members, I might add. Mm. Uh, but that's the only way you'll know for sure. Uh, I think this case will be uh, done. Uh, by the time uh, the Olympics come by, and um, I don't think it will be an issue. But still, you never know. You never know. Uh, but what is telling is that 
Canada has objected to the judicial process in China, the process and all its uh, failings um, in, 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 res- in respecting international law. Uh, but what Canada hasn't yet done publicly is to say the two Michaels never engaged directly or indirectly in intelligence gathering operations. And I find that uh, a little difficult. Uh, it's, it's one thing to complain about the process. It's another thing to say they didn't do it. Right. And uh, I think someone may want to look into that. Uh, one other question, Richard. What does the sentence handed down to Michael Spanvar, does it give us any idea on what Michael Kovrig might be facing? And that's, I lay awake at night uh, wondering like that because I've had a, a, a client um, executed uh, by uh, theocratic uh, state uh, Iran. Uh, so it brings back really unpleasant memories for me, uh, but that's just me. Uh, I can't imagine what the families are enduring at this point, uh, faced with the unknown. Uh, I, I just don't know. It, it's deeply troubling emotionally uh, to see uh, our second Michael uh, not knowing uh, what the potential fate will be. Uh, and uh, that's a powerful, powerful uh, uh, impact uh, on, on the families and, and, and certainly on the conscience of Canada. All right, Richard Curland, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much. And I'm sure we'll get an update from you on what's happening in that yep. trial. But thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks again, Jill. Be well. Thank you. Well, some alarming numbers were released earlier today coming from the Vancouver Police Department. The department has put out a warning to the public about a significant increase in reported sexual assaults happening citywide, but also looking at a big increase in sexual assaults. These are stranger sexual assaults reported in the Granville Mall, the Granville Entertainment District as well. So we are going to talk a little bit more about this and come Coming up in uh, about 15 minutes from now, we're also going to take a look at court cases when charges are laid and what kind of punishments are being handed out when we're talking about cases of sexual assault. So so let's check in now, though, with Constable Tanya Visentine, Media Relations Officer with the Vancouver Police Department. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, Can you run us through the numbers on what you're seeing in reported sexual assaults at this point? Yeah, so we've seen a 129% increase in stranger sexual assault reported to us in just July when compared to July of 2019. And the reason why I'm not comparing it to 2020 is, as we know, last year was a bit of an anomaly. Uh, not too many people were out and about. So to compare this year to another kind of normal July would have been uh, 2019. In particular, along the Granville Entertainment District, we are seeing a 167% increase in sexual assaults. Um, again, along the Granville Entertainment District, compared to the average of the past three Julys from the past three years. So obviously this is very concerning for us. And um, yeah, there have been eight incidents um, since July 1st on the Granville Entertainment District. And so of that eight, um, it ranges from unwanted touching, which would be groping, to again, forced, uh, forced intercourse. And I know some people have been taking issue with that wording, and I know it's a criminal code wording, but and, and because there isn't actually a charge more talking about rape, but safe to say, when we see the phrase forced sexual intercourse, we're talking about rape. Yes, that's right. And I think that's just more of the term um, 
that people use when, in actual fact, the, the word sexual assault is what's used in the criminal code. And, and there are three uh, levels of, of uh, sexual assault in the criminal code. That's sexual, regular sexual assault, sexual assault with a weapon or threat, and then aggravated sexual assault. So, yes, sexual assault is rape, but um, after 1983, there were some laws changed. And so in the criminal code, it's, it is sexual assault. Uh, when we look at those numbers as well, uh, is it safe to say that numbers are probably higher given these are what has been reported to police, but we know that it's a crime that is underreported? For sure, for sure. So, you know, usually offenses against a person uh, are underreported. We do know that, just that's anecdotally speaking uh, to members in the community. So, um, and that's the other thing we want to raise awareness to is there might be some men or women out there that feel that um, they were touched inappropriately and, and yes, there was no intercourse, but they may have been touched. But that's another thing we want to bring awareness to is that that is also sexual assault and it is not, um, we won't tolerate that either. And no one should be uh, touched in any way that's, that's unwanted. So we're just kind of raising uh, the alarms and raising awareness and wanting people to know that any type of unwanted touching behavior is, is a sexual assault, and we want that reported to us for sure. And when you talk about the increase, saying that uh, since July 1st of this year, there have been eight incidents uh, related to the Granville Entertainment District. And again, it's not a normal year with things that are open and, and people in the downtown area. Is this happening when people are coming out from bars in the evening or is it happening at certain times of day? And again, not to diminish saying that, that it's, it's not as bad, but I'm just wondering if, if you can give a time frame kind of for when these are happening. So I don't have a time frame specifically. I do know it's not happening uh, to be technical inside these bars or restaurant establishments along the mall. Uh, we are in contact with um, those uh, uh, businesses along the Granville Mall, letting them know that this is what we're aware of, just so everybody kind of has their ears and eyes open. But it, it happens uh, in throughout the neighborhood. So we, we basically just want to awareness, uh, raise awareness and focus on the offenders and, and um, uh, you know, just really bring awareness to this very serious topic. Do you have any idea or as far as suspect descriptions uh, and how many offenders you might be dealing with? So I don't have uh, specific descriptions, but I, I can say that they, it's all different descriptions. It's not uh, one person alone. Is that not surprising, I guess, but it does seem like an increase in these incidents. It would, it would seem to make more sense if it was one perpetrator or a couple of perpetrators. Is that alarming that we could potentially be dealing with several people that are doing this? For sure. I mean, as a woman myself, and I'm sure you can attest to this, this is like the ultimate um, nightmare for all of us, right? This is not, we take, so here, of course, we have a, a sex crimes unit and we take these incidences very seriously. And to see this uprise in such a short period of time is extremely concerning. So, um, you know, we, we want, like I said, we're trying to target the offenders, raise awareness and, and really just make it known out there that any unwanted touching is a sexual assault and could uh, face charges. Are you appealing to people, women, that perhaps have been victimized by this? Maybe they just wanted to put it behind them and didn't report it. Are you appealing to women to come forward in that that could help potentially get suspect descriptions? Absolutely. So if there's anybody who did survive an incident like this, please call us Um 
even if you think it's nothing, um, it's it's so something um, to put into plain English. So we we want these uh, incidents reported. And again, we have analysts that um, you know really analyze the data that's brought in, and and we can see where certain things are happening and possibly certain uh, similar descriptions and whatnot. So. We, we analyze this data and that could help us um, solve certain cases for sure. And, and when you talk about the eight incidents, again, that range from groping to forced sexual intercourse or rape, can you say how many, are we talking about one case of rape or is this something that's happened repeatedly? So it's all considered uh, all types of, of uh, sexual assault. And like I said, it just ranges from just touching to, again, intercourse. So it, it ranges along the spectrum. All right, Constable Vizentine, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for coming on the program and talking more about this. Oh, just before I let you go, I know there was also talk of the hands-off campaign. Is that a campaign that's kind of ramping up now in the city? Right, so that hands-off campaign was initially brought in um, back in 2019, and it was kind of like an advertisement that we were doing along with transit um, and um, the uh, bars in downtown. Now we're just uh, bringing it back on social media, just again, really bring awareness that unwanted touching is is um, a crime and it could result in charges. So it's, it's to get the conversation going and it's to hopefully uh, get people to contact us to, to make uh, these files. All right. Uh, Constable Vizentine, thanks again so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. We were just talking with Constable Tanya Vizentine with the Vancouver Police Department about the increase in stranger sexual assaults being reported in the city of Vancouver. Police saying they are seeing a 129% increase in stranger sexual assaults reported in July alone, and they're comparing it to July of 2019. Also saying there's been a 167% increase in sexual assaults taking place in the Granville Entertainment Entertainment District downtown, and that since July of this year, there have been eight incidents related to that part of the city alone, ranging from groping to rape. So we are going to talk more about this and what happens when perpetrators are caught and when charges are laid. Sarah Lehman is the lawyer and founder of Sarah Lehman Law Group, and Sarah joins us on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, are you surprised at all by these numbers? You know, I am a little bit surprised. I mean, they are pretty jarring numbers to hear. Uh, That's a huge leap. Um, So that is troubling. Uh, I do think that there's a couple of different factors at play, though. So it may not just be that all of a sudden there's just way more sexual assaults being committed, allegedly, but perhaps that this is reflective of the fact that people feel a little bit more um, comfortable coming forward and reporting these incidents. So I think that that um, is playing a role in these statistics. Uh, even though, and we talked about this with Tanya Vizentine, that it's still very likely an unreported crime. Or, sorry, oh, yeah. an underreported. Yeah, absolutely. Sexual assault is notoriously underreported. And I mean, there's been so many studies conducted on why that is. And often, uh, one of the main things that complainants are worried about in coming forward is that they will not be believed or that nothing will be done about it. And I can say that um, certainly the justice system has uh, heard that. And um, I think that there, there has been action being taken in order to make sure that complainants are being taken seriously and that these matters are proceeding to trial. 
So what happens when somebody is uh, caught, and we talked a bit about this as well, that it's it's called sexual assault in the criminal code. There are three levels of it. What happens when, generally speaking, the outcomes when somebody is caught and charged with these crimes? Well, once you're charged, uh, then, of course, you would have the right to go to trial. So that would be the next Step. Um, you know, if you're saying that you're not guilty or you're disputing the allegation, uh, would be likely to proceed to trial. Now, if you are found to be guilty after trial, then the penalties associated with these kinds of cases are not insignificant. Um, it's not unusual for Crown to be seeking a custodial, which means a jail sentence, even in relation to what we might consider to be more minor cases of sexual assault. So these are very serious offenses that carry very serious consequences. And do you see that happening then when people are charged with any of the three levels? I would imagine aggravated sexual assault hopefully would carry a longer sentence as it's a more more serious crime or could be a more serious crime. Are you seeing people actually get jail time? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, That's the short answer to the question. Um, We are seeing a very heavy sentences being handed down in in these types of cases. And you talked to, again, about sometimes the reluctance to report is somebody might not think they're going to be believed. What about the treatment of victims when it gets to that stage of trial and victims knowing that not only are you going to have to relive what happened, but there's a good chance you're going to be questioned by a defense lawyer. Your background is going to come out. You're going to be judged in this courtroom. Well, I mean, that is a part of the trial process to a certain extent. Um, And a person who's charged with sexual assault has a lot on the line. There's huge jeopardy there um, for them, not just in terms of the stigma that's associated with this type of allegation, even let alone a conviction, but also the penalties that can flow from if there is a finding of guilt. So it is right that these cases are tried vigorously and that they have to proceed to trial. And unfortunately, we have to do that uh, by calling the evidence of the complainant or other witnesses. That can be traumatic, but it is an important part of due process and our trial system. Um, What I can say, though, is that uh, anybody who's concerned about potentially coming forward and worried that maybe something in their past could be exposed uh, can worry a little bit less because we have had significant amendments to our criminal laws that uh, no longer allow that type of evidence to really be introduced except for in special circumstances. When we're talking about these numbers that were released today as well, and Vancouver Police making the point that these are stranger sexual assaults, do the cases get treated differently? Not to say that one is is worse than the other or one should get more attention, but do they do cases of stranger sexual assault, sexual assaults? Do you think get treated differently in the criminal system as opposed to sexual assaults where the people know each other? Well, I mean, every case is unique. And so perhaps in a case where there is um, a stranger assault, there might be issues with respect to identity or the proper identification of the accused person. So there could be different challenges from Crown's perspective. But really, these cases are all uh, treated you know, generally the same, uh, speaking you know, with broad strokes here. Uh, and it might come down to these nuances um, at sentencing if a person was found guilty. All right. Just before I let you go, I wanted to ask you quickly about another story uh, that was in the news today as well. And I, I suppose it was only a matter of time. It's come up in a court case about jurors and whether or not they should be forced or can be forced to reveal their vaccination status. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, this is really interesting. And it actually ties in well to this discussion because many sex assault trials proceed these days by way of judge and jury. Uh, So we do have a ruling now from the B.C. Supreme Court, uh, which says that uh, lawyers aren't allowed to inquire about a juror's vaccination status, that it could raise a reasonable apprehension of bias, and that there's a good reason why jurors might not want to share that information publicly or within the uh, setting of a courtroom. So um, it, in my view, is a good decision, uh, and particularly in line with recent amendments that we've had in terms of jury selection processes as well. With the pandemic going on, though, are there, I I haven't covered courts since taking over this job, but jurors sit really close together. Are they still sitting really close together? And is that perhaps a concern that one juror who's vaccinated might be concerned that the person beside them isn't? Well, courts are using social distancing measures now. Um, So jury trials are only in session for criminal trials. So civil trial jury trials are still suspended as a result of the pandemic. Um, So wherever courthouses are able, they are using social distancing. So I don't expect that jurors would be sitting in very close proximity like they were pre-pandemic. So I think that all those precautions are still being taken. Masks are being worn still in most courtrooms, at least here in British Columbia. Uh, So, you know, I think that proper precautions are in place. So do you think this ruling then, will this have an impact if it happens to come up again? Or is, is this an issue that did need this guidance or this, this decision to kind of put it to rest? I think so. I think it's very important that we have clear guidance now from the courts on this issue. It was bound to come up. And so I'm glad that it did. And we have very clear direction that it's not appropriate to question a juror's vaccine status. All right. Interesting things happening in the court system. We'll leave it there for today. But Sarah, always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. You too.